Hi, it's Jackie. And on the last episode of Jackie Always Unplugged, I talked about how we learn to study the Bible and how I'm learning to study it in some new ways. And this week, I want to look at a familiar passage that appears to ask women to submit to their abusive husband's authority. And after diving into it a little deeper, it turns out it doesn't say that at all. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of The Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. Welcome back. Well, the reason I want to dig into this passage is because it actually is used at times by pastors as biblical support for telling women to go back and submit to their abusive husbands. And I know some of you listening are going, that doesn't happen today, (laughs) not in America in 21st century. Well, I'm here to tell you as someone who's pastored women for 30 years, it sure does. It happens. It happens in our churches. But you don't have to take my anecdotal evidence, right, where I could tell you a few stories, because we actually have one famous scholar's response about domestic violence on YouTube, and I thought it would be helpful if we just listened in and hear what he has to say. What should a wife's submission to her husband look like if he's an abuser? (laughs) Oh, my... Part of that answer is clearly going to depend on what kind of abuse we're dealing with here. How serious this is. Is her life in danger? Um, Or is this verbal unkindness? I'm not sure what the person who asked the question had in mind. So let me just talk about maybe different kinds. Um, A woman's submission to her husband is rooted in the Word of God calling her to be for the Lord's sake, for the Lord's sake, submissive to him, which means she always has a higher allegiance, namely to Christ. And therefore, Christ's word governs her life. And Christ has many words besides be submissive. Be submissive is not an absolute because her Lord has other things to tell her so that if the husband tells her, something that contradicts what the Lord tells her, then she's got a crisis there of to whom do I submit now? And clearly she submits to Jesus above the Lord, I mean above above her husband. And the reason she's submitting to her husband is, is because of her prior superior submission to the Lord. So if this man, for example, is calling her to engage in abusive acts willingly, group sex or something really weird, bizarre, harmful, that clearly would be sin, then the way she submits, and I really think this is possible, it's kind of paradoxical, 
She's not going to go there. I'm just saying, no, she's not going to do what Jesus would disapprove, even though the husband is asking her to do it. She's going to say, however, something like, honey, I, I want so much to follow you as my leader. God calls me to do that, and I would love to do that. It would be sweet to me if I could enjoy your leadership. And so then she would say, but if you ask me to do this, require this of me, then I can't, I can't go there. Now that's one kind of situation. Just, just a word on the, on the other kind. If, if it's not requiring her to sin, but simply hurting her, then I think she endures verbal abuse for a season and she endures perhaps being smacked one night and then she seeks help from the church. I mean, every time I deal with somebody in this, I find the ultimate solution under God in the church. In other words, this man should be disciplined. This man should be disciplined. She should have a safe place in a body of Christ where she goes and then the people in the church deal with him. She can't deal with him by herself. So the short answer, I think, is the church is really crucial here to step in, be her strength, say to this man, you can't do this. You cannot do this. That's not what we allow. That's not what Christ calls you to be. So I can't go into all the details, but I would say, I hope, I would say to a woman, come to a church that you feel safe in, tell them the case, let the leaders step in and help you navigate the difficulties here. Phew, there's just so much for me in this right here. Let me just start out by saying, no, um, submission to the wife, to the husband, is not rooted in the text. Mutual submission of husband and wife to each other is rooted in the text, Ephesians 5, 21. But I'm not going to dig into that passage today because there's a different passage I want to dig into, and so I'm not going to get sidetracked. I did want to point out, did you notice when it comes to sexual immorality, he has an issue with submission, right? She doesn't have to. But if he just hits her, and what's this verbal, like, unkindness? There's a little bit difference than verbal abuse. Anyway, I also want to point out that most churches aren't equipped to deal with domestic violence. I don't know if you know this, but most of the typical classes that we take in seminary are not on the things like domestic violence. Um, We take classes on eschatology and pneumonology and the Pauline epistles. And if you want to know how good we are at handling domestic violence, just Google a few names like Rachel Denenhuller or Bill Hybels or the Southern Baptist Convention. Because what we'll find is we kind of suck at helping those who come forth with abuse, right? What we see over and over again is the guys in leadership tend to align themselves with the guys, especially if those guys are important to the inner workings of their organization, financially or influentially, or maybe they're just really good leaders, right? I had a woman share with me one time that she told her pastor that she was being abused, and he asked her if her husband punched her in the face or strangled her. Well, her answer was no, and so he responded, well, then you haven't been abused, and you need to stop saying that about your husband. So I wish we could count on the church, but evidence seems to point to the fact that we can't. I also want to say as I go forward in this conversation today that I'm not trained in domestic violence either. You know, I tend to, when women come to me, point them to women who 
are to other people who are. But I am a pastor and a public theologian. So back to the text I go to try to understand because how we interpret these passages, passages like Ephesians 5.22 or Genesis 16, um, how we interpret those passages have real life ramifications for women. So let me start with this. 95% of all violence in America, whether inflicted upon women or men, is done by, at the hands of men. 95% of all violence is done at the hands of men. Now, that might be man uh, being violent against another man or man being violent against a woman. 95%. So what's very fascinating to me about this passage that we're going to dig into today in Genesis 16.6, it's the story of Sarah and Hagar, is that we actually read about a woman abusing another woman. And this is a very familiar story for many of you, I know, but I'd like to push it today and just see if there's something more there that we've never seen before. And definitely let's talk about the fact that this is not a a passage about telling women to go back and submit to their authority. So let me summarize the story because not everybody understands it or has read it or you've read it a long time ago and don't remember. But Sarah um, is married to Abraham and she can't conceive. And so she gives her slave, Hagar, to him so that she can conceive on Sarah's behalf. I mean, this is the real-life maiden's tale stuff right here. So Hagar gets pregnant, and she gets a little bit of an attitude with Sarah, and Sarah's not having it. And so in verse 6, we read that Sarah dealt harshly with Hagar. Harshly, the word is. Some translations use the word afflicted. It's a very strong word. In fact, some scholars say it characterizes Pharaoh's treatment of the Hebrew slaves. So think about that. I think we'd be safe to say that what has occurred in Genesis 16 is what we would call today domestic violence, abuse. I like how one scholar says it. Um, She says, Hagar has no say over her body being given to Abraham or her child being given to Sarah. Hagar is on the underside of all the power curves in operation at the time. She is a female, she is a foreigner, and she is enslaved. She has one power. She is fertile. But she lacks autonomy over her fertility. In contrast, Sarah is free. She has some societal privileges as Hagar's woman, or as as Abraham's woman and Hagar's mistress, but she is infertile. And she is an infertile woman in a male-dominated world, both of which imperil her status. So, she seeks to attain and restore her status on and in Hagar's body. Yeah, that's what's going on in that home. You know, I grew up in an abusive home. Not on that level, (laughs) because this level is like sex trafficking right here. But there are some of you listening that, This is on your level for whatever way it expressed itself in your home or in your marriage. Sexual abuse, exploitation, it might have been physical, verbal, emotional, financial, spiritual. And I want you to hear me. I'm sorry that that happened to you. It was wrong. And God, God sees you. And I pray for you right now that you will have an encounter with God like Hagar did. You, face-to-face with the divine, 
hearing the whispers of blessing and hope. Those of us who've been abused, we need the power of Jesus, don't we, to resurrect the shit in our lives, to take the dead and the decayed things that happened in our lives and bring forth new life. Like, we actually need the power of Jesus Christ. And what we learn about Jesus in the Gospels is he's good, and he's gracious, and he's kind, and he's hospitable towards you and me. And that's going to be pretty important, that word hospitable. In just a minute, you'll see. So let me go back to the story. Hagar runs away, and she is met by God. In Genesis 16, 7 and 8, it says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? Now, we need to take note here something. She has an encounter with the living God. That, that phrase, angel of the Lord, it's called a theophany. It's basically a manifestation of deity. Bottom line, she had an encounter with the living God. And Hagar, she has two of them, two, right? Two run-ins with the great I am. And in those run-ins, every time there's an encounter, he blesses her and gives her hope in her future. Now, I need to define hope here. Because hope is not the belief that everything was, is, and will be fine. Real hope requires two things, clarity and imagination. Clarity is essential because one cannot avoid reckoning with reality. That means no Pollyannas allowed. Clarity. Let's be honest about the situation. Clarity and imagination follows closely behind because it empowers one to turn towards the future with a new perspective that embraces uncertainty. It's the ability to help us see that what is now will not always be. Something better is coming. Hope. So God gives her hope by promising her a son. And this was kind of a big deal in antiquity, because like a son, that son is really important for her livelihood. And the son is going to have a dynasty, he said. He establishes this, like, covenantal relationship. He, he restates it later to Abraham in 17, uh, 20 through 21. He says, as for Ishmael, I will surely bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of 12 rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. Hagar, this lowly, enslaved nobody by society standards, is the first woman in Scripture to receive such divine enunciation. Kind of makes me think of the Mother Mary. So God uh, gives her blessings. He tells her what's going to happen. He says, hey, name your son Ishmael, which means God listens. God listens. Anybody need to hear that today? God listens to our cry for help. And as many of you know, she's the only person to give God a name. She calls him the God who sees. Or it might be translated like, you are the living God who sees me. The chapter ends, chapter 16 ends in verse 15 where it says this, Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham called uh, the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. I just want to pause on that because I have read this story so many times in my life, and I never picked up on that fact that Hagar is most likely a very young woman, probably in her teens, definitely not out of her mid-20s. Let's put her at her teens because that's probably more realistic. He's 86 when she gives birth. 
Can you imagine as a young woman being forced to have sex with a man that's 85 years old? It's funny, isn't it? How we read a story and we self-select what we pay attention to and what we don't. I've read that a bazillion times and I never noticed that. And I never really noticed verse nine, which you haven't heard me get to yet, but that's where we're going. That's the verse that seems to imply taken out of context, that a woman should go back and submit to domestic violence in her home. Yeah, that's what it says. God says to her, I want you to go home and submit to Sarah. Yeah, it's disturbing, isn't it? I had to ask myself, why would a good God, and scripture does say that God is good, in Hebrew the word is tov, Psalm 119.6 says, you are good and do only good. Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is tov, good. And so if God is good, then why would God ask a woman to go back into an abusive home? And I thought there's got to be a reason here. And what I discovered is this passage in context to the whole story, because when we study the Bible, what we do is we look at a particular story or a particular passage or a few verses, but we always keep it in context. We, we read what came before it, and we read what cam, comes after it, and we keep it in the middle of it, right? Context. And when you do that, what you realize is this is not a story that promotes the principle of women submitting to uh, her abusive husband's authority. It's about the ethic of ancient hospitality. It's about finding ourselves in situations that are not, where we have to make choices. And those choices are not between good and bad, but shit and shittier. So we have to understand what's happening in ancient hospitality in order to understand what this passage is about and what God might be saying to his people. Now, ancient hospitality is not what we do today in America. You know, today we have someone over for dinner. It has parameters. It's usually people we like and off they go. But in, in antiquity, hospitality was about providing food and shelter and protection for a stranger. It was a basic and sacred rule with life and death consequences. And so we have to be mindful, right? we got to go back into the to, to culture. This is um, Abraham and Sarah's story sits in early Hebrew time, right? Which means they were semi-nomadic. And as nomads, a lone individual could not survive. So back then, people had a deep awareness of the fragility of life. I mean, they didn't know if another tribe would come and and burn their place or whether they would have food for the next day or if a plague would kill their children. I mean, they just had this persistent knowledge of their interdependence on each other. And this knowledge went bone deep. I mean, you felt it in the beat of your heart and in your marrow the moment you stepped out the door into an unkind world. If not for the kindness of strangers you might not make it home again. Now, most of us in America don't experience that, or at least most of the listeners to this podcast aren't experiencing that. But I have traveled around the country, around the world, where, where, where I have been in some of those experiences. And my daughter, Madison, she lived on the border of Guatemala and Mexico in a shelter. She lived in the LA 72 shelter, which is where the train starts. They call it the beast. And it's the train that the migrants take up through Mexico. And one of her jobs during that time was to do intake, which is where you interview everybody who comes to the shelter to find out if there's been any human rights violations. And then that's reported to the UN. And so I would ask Madison, like, so what are you seeing as there been a lot of violations? And she's like, oh, mom, every single person either raped, beaten, 
robbed every single person. And I'll spare you the stories because they are absolutely disturbing. We have stories about ancient, the ethic, the ancient ethic of hospitality in our scriptures. Actually, now that you listen to what it is, you're going to see it all over the scriptures. But there are stories that speak to this idea, if not for the kindness of strangers, one might not make it home again. Just, just read Judges 19 through 21, the story of the Levite and his concubine. That incorporates the ethic of hospitality. And we could turn to the New Testament, the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10, again, incorporates this idea of expectation, this custom of, of hospitality. In, le- in later Hebrew time, now this is long after Hagar and, or Sarah, Hagar, and Abraham's story, the Israelites settle in the land, right? And they are instructed to remember the oppression of, in Egypt and what life was like as a stranger migrating to new lands. So there's this Levitical law instituted, um, this ancient festival of Sukkot for the Hebrews as a reminder of this facet of their identity and of their responsibility to each other, and to God. And here's what it says in Leviticus 19, 33 through 34. When a stranger resides with you in your land, you shall not oppress the stranger. The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the stranger as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So it's with this understanding that, you know, this idea of the ethic of ancient hospitality that I want to look at um, God's advice to Hagar, where he says to her, go back and submit to Sarah, right? I want to look at how the ethic of hospitality is at play in the wholeness of the story. And if we do, we have to back up. Now, Hagar's story here is, is Genesis 16, to remind you. Let's back up to Genesis 12, because that's the first time we see this ethic of hospitality at play. And it's the story where Abraham and Sarah go down to Egypt. It's dangerous, and Abraham pimps out Sarah. Now, whatever we make of Abraham's actions, and I have a few, um, the story does acknowledge that there's this real fear and danger of being a stranger in a new land. It also shows that this code of provision for the stranger, that Abraham doubted it was going to be passed to him. He didn't believe it was going to be followed through. In other words, hostility awaited him. So that's the first time we see it at play in this passage, this story. And then we see it again in Exodus 8, I'm sorry, Genesis 18, 1 through 8. And it's where Abraham receives the three men at his tent. And this passage is interesting to me because it goes into great length about food prep. Uh, let me just read it to you because I, I bet like you, like me, you've never actually stopped and read it and thought, why so much conversation about food prep? Well, one day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance of his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while Water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food and refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. And so Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, hurry, get three large measures of your best flour, knead it into dough and bake some bread. And then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a tender calf and gave it to his servant who quickly prepared it. And when the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. 
Yeah, that's a long passage about food prep. You have to ask yourself, why is that in the scriptures? I mean, for crying out loud, of all the things that God could have stored, right, in this written word, this is it, cooking? (laughs) Yeah, but see, the narrator who's telling the story knows that the original audience that heard it first, that's not you or me, would have totally understood what was happening here. Hospitality being extended to strangers. Because there's no hotels in the wilderness, and it's dangerous out there. I like how one scholar talks about ancient hospitality. He said it was to transform an unknown person who may pose a threat into a guest, thus removing the threat. From the perspective of the host, hospitality could be dangerous as well. Therefore, hospitality was not offered to everyone. Not only was hospitality about protection and provision, it also was about honor. And we don't live in an uh, honor-shamed culture, but Abraham did. And protecting one's guest was a matter of honor, right? So, so we see this custom, right, this ethic of, of hospitality in its importance and that it brings honor to a guest if they do it well, perfect, protect and provide. And that takes me to the next illustration of hospitality, or the lack thereof, I should say. And it's in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19. Now, I want to remind you, we started with hospitality being hostile, right? It, did, it wasn't offered in Genesis 12. And now here we are in Genesis 19, and we're going to find that it's hostile again. Now, often you have heard this story about Sodom and Gomorrah in context of it being about homosexuality. But I don't think so. And there's several reasons why, but I'll just give you one. And that is because the text says, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came to violate the strangers at Lot's house. All the men. Every man in the village. Are we going to say that every man in that village, young and old, were violent homosexuals? I don't think so. That just doesn't add up. I think what's at play here is violating the sacred rule of ancient hospitality. And the reason I say that is because when you listen to the text, in light of understanding ancient hospitality, it starts to pop. Oh, this is what's going on. Listen to the text. That evening, the two angels came to the entrance of the city of Sodom. And Lot was sitting there. And when he saw them, he stood up to meet them. And then he welcomed them, bowed his face to the ground. My lords, he said, come to my home to wash your feet and be my guests for the night. You may get up early in the morning and be on your way again. Oh, no, they replied. We'll just spend the night out here in the city square. But Lot insisted. So at last they went home with him. Lot prepared a feast for them, complete with fresh bread made without yeast, and they ate. But before they retired for the night, all the men of Sodom, young and old, came from all over the city and surrounded the house. And they shouted to Lot, where are the men who came to spend the night with you? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. So Lot stepped outside to talk to them, shutting the door behind him. Please, my brothers, he begged. Don't do such a wicked thing. Look, I have two virgin daughters. Let me bring them out to you and you can do with them as you wish. But please leave these men alone for they are my guests and under my protection. Now, if you're anything like me right now, you're a little irritated and I am too that Lot offers up his two virgin daughters. Like that is a disturbing text. One I haven't dug into yet, guys, but it's frustrating. And what I will tell you is there's a lot of passages in the Bible about violent treatment to women that is very disturbing. Again, we're selective in what we read and what we don't read. The point I want to make here um, is that 
well, let me just back up. One scholar says this about it, which I think is trivial. His answer isn't enough for me. But anyway, he says, original, the original audience would have understood the honor of giving over the daughters as a lesser crime than permitting violence to a guest who has sought and received protection. Now, I don't like that. I think it's a, a wimpy answer. But it does at least emphasize to me even more the idea of how important the ethic of ancient hospitality was. So yeah, back to the story, Sodom and Gomorrah. The prophet Ezekiel says this about it. This was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And Jesus read this story similarly. He said this in Matthew 10. He said, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet as you leave the house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Again, what we keep hearing in these passages is if it weren't for the kindness of strangers, one might not make it home. And so in between these two stories, Genesis 12 and Genesis 19, which show these horrific, hostile environments, we have verse 9, chapter 16, verse 9, where God offers the idea of Hagar going back and submitting to her mistress. And when I think about this, I think, okay, in light of what's happening in her culture and the lack of of adhering to the ethic of hospitality, yeah, Abraham's house is not safe, but it is safer than her going out on her own. It will at least, at minimum, provide protection, shelter, clothing, education. As one woman, womanist theologian said, God's presence does not always liberate. Sometimes it helps one survive and have a better quality of life. God's presence does not always liberate. Sometimes it helps one survive and have a better quality of life. Yeah, so what I see here is that sometimes the situation is, is there are choices, right? And this is not a choice. Hey, this is a good choice and this is a bad choice. What, what Hagar is fading, facing is this is a shitty choice or a shittier choice. And what I want you to know, this doesn't surprise God. He meets her in the dung and offers her his presence and his wisdom. Now, later in the story, Abraham throws Hagar and Ishmael out. And by this time, Ishmael is about 17 years old, and he's had 17 years with his father, Abraham. And it's interesting when you read the text because it seems like they have a good relationship. And actually, even in Genesis 25, later when Abraham dies, we read that Ishmael and Isaac bury their father together. So here it is even later after they've been thrown out, and Isaac and um, Ishmael still seemed to be in relationships. So interesting things happened there in those 17 years that were probably good for Ishmael. So anyway, regardless, what I want you to see in that part is he throws them out, and the text says he gives them minimal provision of water and food. So Abraham is violating the ethic of hospitality. And once again, Hagar finds herself distraught, and she assumes her demise. And once again, God showed up. The second theophany happens, and, and this time, the one who extends the ethic of hospitality is God himself. She thinks she's going to die. She thinks her son's going to die. He opens her eyes and shows her water at a well. 
Yeah. The very well that later Isaac settles at. The point I want to make here is this time God's provision and protection came through a different means. We might even say a miraculous means. You know, about a month ago, Steve and I were having coffee. We live in a high rise, 15th floor, mostly glass. And there's a train track that goes by our house. And we were drinking coffee and I noticed that there were three men laying huddled asleep beside the train tracks. And at that very moment, my son Hampton came bursting through the door, finishing his workout. And I said to him, hey, we need your help because we didn't speak English and he does. And I knew immediately looking at those three boys, they were not homeless. They were migrants. And Hampton didn't know what was going on. He said, look, I got to get to work. And I said, okay, but before you go to work, could you just look out the window? And so he looks out the window and he turns to dad and says, okay, let's go. And so he and Steve grabbed food and bottles of water. And I watched with my binoculars from the 15th floor. And I wish I could communicate to you what I saw because I feel like it was a theophany. I feel like I watched Jesus show up. Now, it happened through my son, and he is by no means Jesus, let me be clear. If you know him, you know he's intense. He exudes energy while sleeping. I mean, that kid is never calm. He's an eight on the anagram. And so here I am watching this intense kid slowly approach and crouch down. And they wake up, and they're afraid, and I would have been too. And he slowly reaches out and gives them water. They sit up, and he sat down. And that's when I saw it. They sat up, and he sat down. And I thought to myself, that's what Jesus does right there. He crouches low. He gets on our level. That's what Jesus does for us. And while they were chatting, the cops showed up. Somebody called the cops. And I chuckled because I thought to myself, well, Hampton's had tons of experience with the cops, so he's got this. I mean, just the things that us parents think to ourselves. So he tells the boys, come follow me. He tells the police, these are my friends. The police are like, you're in the wrong spot. He's got no problem. He starts moving. Meanwhile, I realize they're coming to the apartment. So I call Madison. What's my legal ramifications to this? And she said, mom, you're a pastor providing humanitarian aid. You don't speak English. You don't know their status. It's always good to have kids that are wise. So Steve made him breakfast. They hadn't eaten or drank in six days. When they crossed the border, they ran into a rancher. They had hoped that he would give them something to drink. Instead, he shot at them. So here we are, sitting in my apartment on the 15th floor of downtown Austin, just chit-chatting as if this is a normal thing, every, everyday occurrence. And in the middle of it, Hampton very quietly just throws out, does anybody need shoes? Yeah, one boy did. He was a size 8. Guess what size Hampton is? You got it, an 8. And more food, more chitter-chatter, and then Hampton throws it in there again very calmly. Anybody need some clothes? Yeah, they all did, right? I mean, they only had the clothes on their back that they had been wearing for over 2,000 miles. They looked it. They smelled it. And what I loved as I watched my son was he was not some white, Western descent, wealthy kid saying, hey, let me help you, like, you know, a Messiah complex. He was just one of them. And, and the way he talked with them and the way he ate with them and then how he offered to meet some of their needs was with the utmost dignity. You could see he was working to make sure that their dignity was intact. And I thought, yeah, right there is what Jesus does. 
That's what Jesus looks like. So those boys started to leave. There was one of the three that spoke a little bit of broken English, and he said to me that if it hadn't been for the church along the route, they would have died. If it hadn't been for the church, they would have died. And it makes me wonder, what if we, the church, knocked ourselves out with being hospitable, right? Provision, protection, shelter, right? What, what if instead of us spending so much energy and time teaching about how to be a biblical man or a biblical woman and make sure that everybody's understanding their roles, that he's leading and she's submitting, how about if we take all of that energy, time, and resources and start finding creative ways to provide for the abused, Yeah, what about pastors and theologians getting trained in domestic violence? But if they don't, send them to people who do. Not some lay counselor that we train in our church that follows through with our patriarchal teaching, right? No, 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 no. How about we pay for these people who are abused to go for the very best counselors in domestic violence so they can get help? I'm not trained in domestic violence, but I am trained in how to study the Bible. And it's very crucial that we do deep digging in these passages, that we give it, we keep the, the, the verse 9 in context to the whole story, right? This is not a story about submission to your husband. This is about hospitality. And we don't live in a culture any, like women back did, then did in antiquity. Women today, at least women in America, at least most women in America, do not depend, right? Their eating shelter does not depend on a man. They have the capacity to work. We have agency in America. We have programs and people. We have faith communities, governments, assistance, NGOs, extended family that can provide food and shelter and protection. Women today in America, most I should say, do not live like women in antiquity. Therefore, this passage does not apply to them. Now, I will say, there are women in other parts of the country or other parts, other countries where that might be the case. I'd have a different answer at that point, but we're talking about here right now. I want to go back to the question, is God good? Sometimes when exposed to stories like those are the three boys or the ones that Madison heard on the border. I got to be honest with you, I pause and wonder. But I hold on to what I see in our creation story and the person of Jesus Christ. That's my North Star. Together they show me the goodness of God. And what I see through them is that God's intention for all of us is to flourish. Flourishing. And therefore, any dehumanizing act toward the Imago Dei isn't God's goodness. And if that's the case, then it seems like the church needs to do some work with realigning their theology and practice to God's vision. Abused people need to be in spaces where flourishing can happen, not further abuse occur. And please don't quote me, Malachi. I know what you're going to say, but Jackie, there's a verse that says God hates divorce. Yeah, the text is better translated to say he that hates and divorces his wife. See, that text is not about getting divorced. It's about men, and that that culture are the only ones legally able to file for a divorce, men divorcing their wives and leaving them in a state of destitute because the only way she could survive was through his provision and protection. So, yeah, 
We've got so much more to say on this subject. We, sh- we haven't even touched Ephesians and Colossians, but I feel like I've said enough. So I'm going to let it just sit there. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day.